Hello and welcome to the Unheard Weekly Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery. I've been away for a few weeks while well, I've been missing some of these uh, podcasts and the week I come back, Aisha isn't available. So our duo is uh, split for another week. Uh, I could, don't quite know where Aisha is this week. She was at the BAFTAs earlier with Joanna Lumley and the great and the good of the arts world. But um, where she is today, I'm not quite sure. But I'm not alone. I am with James Bloodworth, who is a regular contributor to Unheard. Um, but the main reason we've asked him to join us uh, this week is because he has a book out. Your first proper book, um, James, is that a fair way of describing it? You've written a, uh, longer pamphlets before, but this is your first uh, book. Quite exciting. Yes, this is my first um, full-length book, if you like. Um, I previously wrote a 20,000-word pamphlet. It's more of a pamphlet then. Mm. Uh, but it's, yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying the process and getting a grasp of, of how it works, basically, mm. at the moment. And uh, we're recording just towards the end of uh, February, um, and the book is out formally in the next week, but people can buy it on, given what we're about to discuss, I'm not sure we should say on Amazon, but um, <laughs> people can buy it in the... Uh, pre-order already yeah so it's it's out on the 1st of March which is a week today I believe um, and it's available for pre-order at all good and ethical bookstores <laughs> and that's where you'd rather people buy the um, book because if you are a Times reader you will have seen um, one of a number of uh, previews of the book um, in that newspaper and um, it was an account of time that James spent at an Amazon uh, warehouse and the book, Hired, H-I-R-E-D, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain, is a set of observations, recollections from the time that you spent as an Uber driver, in an Amazon warehouse, as a, as a care worker and in a uh, call centre. Yes, that's right. So early in 2016, I set out, travelled to and lived in various parts of the country and did a number of, of low-paid jobs, um, mm -hmm. really, to see. I basically wanted to see um, what that world, um, get an insight into that world, how precariously mm -hmm. some people were living in, in Britain today. And we'll come on to what you learned um, uh, in, in a moment or two, but t tell us about your background, James. Was there anything in um, your own upbringing that led you to, to do this, or was it a product of your politics why did you want to spend six months in low-income Britain it was it was a, a few things that, that came together really so I mean I didn't go to university until I was I think I think I was 23 um, as a mature student um, before prior to that I'd worked a, worked a series of kind of uh, manual low-paid jobs um, I let I finished school at 16 mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I essentially the, one of the ideas for, for the book was to go back into that world and see if it had changed since I'd, I'd done that mm. that stuff full time really since see if it had changed since austerity see if it had changed um, in the 10 years 10, 10 years in between and also it was something I was interested in anyway so there, there has been a lot in the news in recent years about how the employment statistics are, are generally quite good lots of people mm -hmm. have got back to work but I wanted to look at you know the the how good those jobs are that are being created compared to the jobs that that were lost before mm. um so so those those things came together and developed into the idea for for hired and i think you say in the book um 
you feel that uh, but for a different turn of events or a turn of fortune uh, this could have been you you wouldn't you, very possibly uh, not doing these jobs as you did you know temporarily as an exercise for this book but you might have ended up yourself having to do these um, do these jobs yes well I mean we, when I left school you're uh, not you're not from a well-heeled no you know, background. Um, no I mean I was brought up um, born born to a single mother in in Bridgewater a working-class town in in Somerset I, I didn't do particularly well in my GCSEs came from a, a kind of broken home um, went back to college when I was 19 my grandmother as it as it happened uh, funded me to go through college because I was over 19 I had to pay I think it was 900 900 pounds for the year to do my a-levels um, so I could quite easily if it, if it wasn't for that stroke of fortune having a relative which helped me get through mm. college um, I could easily still be in I mean I worked in a yogurt factory for a while I worked as a laborer I worked as a postman works as a, in a petrol station I mean I'm not as far away from that world um, so in a way you were going back to something you did before you got your university degree. yes um, and so I wanted to to apply the skills I'd learned since I was a journalist um, to the to the world I'd left a decade before and you started off as a sort of specialist journalist I think in covering pharmacy pharmaceuticals yeah so I was in tr a trade publication yeah. yes covering uh, pharmacy and, and healthcare and but I, I think I first came across you I was running conservative home and you were helping Will Straw with left foot forward yeah that's, and um, that's right and so a lot of people will perhaps think of you as a, a man of the left um, you've written some great stuff for us for example on the Podemos movement the left-wing populist movement in in Spain but um, having read the book and really enjoyed it and recommend it to everyone I was there was definitely hints of your uh, of your left-wing worldview um, coming through the pages but this is much more about reporting isn't it I, I, you have tried to give an account of what uh, is happening out there and almost uh, denied yourself you know the usual th end third of the book or whatever people often do saying well this is what needs to be to be done about it you you kind of want these stories to speak for themselves yes i di i didn't want it to be a um kind of a dogmatic book i didn't want it to be a po a polemical book in, in yeah. a sense i didn't want it to be me haranguing readers um in, with my with you know a preconceived worldview it was more I thought there was more value in, in writing a journalistic book in which I presented um, the things I saw straightforwardly, honestly, and then letting people draw their own conclusions from that. That doesn't mean that, you know, I don't, I, I completely strip the book of, like you say, my, my worldview. I think mm. it's very, it's quite clear I lean to the left from the book. Yep. <laughs> um, but it's, it, again, it's not hectoring people. Mm. It's, it's trying to just let people make their own mind, minds up to some extent. Well, well, I want question a couple of the conclusions you make a little bit later, but let's stick to the reportage um, at the beginning. Um, what most surprised you? What, what happened to you in these four jobs that you worked uh, that perhaps you weren't expecting? Um, I think it's... I mean, we we I expected to, to to meet people who were struggling financially, but it's kind of the what what really struck me was the overall kind of bleakness of the world some people inhabit um, in these places where the only employment available to them is precarious, low-paid work. So, on the one hand, you have the, the the financial struggle, but you also have the the indignity which 
comes from those in authority, whether it's your supervisor at mm. the, the employment agency, uh, whether it's your landlord, uh, whether it's the the loan shark or the or the buy to let store you're you're driven to by your inability by the fact that you haven't been paid um, properly at work. Um, there are all these, and then there's there's the kind of more general um, collapse in in the sense of community in some in some former industrial areas of Britain where you've had. Um, that's a particularly strong thing because a lot of people uh, listening to this might think, well, compared to the mining jobs of the past, where there's a lot of danger, a lot of um, uh, pollution and you know, ill health effects, uh, all that's gone, and so people would say the cleaner. Uh, less manually demanding jobs of today amount to an improvement but it's more complicated than that yeah so I mean it's only the kind of pseudo revolutionaries who want to want to send other people's children back down underground to do an incredibly dirty and dangerous job Um, but it's when we lost certain uh, industrial jobs there's also the, the, the sense of camaraderie the the social community built around those jobs has disappeared with it so when I was in in Rugeley in Staffordshire, a former miner said said something something to me which which kind of stuck in my memory. He said, "You know, when when you speak to someone in the town today, they'll say I only work at Amazon." Um, and he said, "Well, we would have never said I'm only a collier mm. collier because that's what you were and you were proud of it." Yeah. Um, so I think there's there's a definite loss of dignity um, in some jobs compared to to the jobs they've replaced, even though the jobs they replaced weren't necessarily you know pleasant or safe places to work I think there's something's been lost um, with the disappearance of that world and it seemed to be particularly lost in a certain kind of place a a smaller town perhaps a little bit like where you hailed from uh, Bridgewater places you visit like Rugeley and Blackpool uh, some of the places in um, uh, South Wales you talk about Blino Gwent where one in six of the people are on prescription medicine you know, extraordinary statistic and perhaps we could talk maybe if we've got time talk about whether Britain could be facing its own sort of opioid crisis of the kind that uh, America um, uh, was already in, in the grip of but um, also you reminded me of something that uh, Ruth Davidson wrote for Unheard uh, in her launch essay um, for us and um, she described really the awful choice that uh, people in smaller towns you know had had to face have to face and you know do they stay she said in um, a place where there will not just be the insecurity that you described but no hope of it ever really changing where the high streets are characterized by uninteresting uh, often exploitative um, institutions or do they go to London where the jobs are but you you spend half of your income sometimes more than half of your income on on rent and cramped accommodation away from your away from your family and it's a it's a pretty invidious choice for a lot of people yes I mean I think partly um, this this stems from in some ways our, our obsession with with social mobility um, when it's when the focus is on you know, either going to university or leaving or moving out um, of where you where you born and grew up. I think partly because it's 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 utopian and ideological. Not everyone. Lot, there are lots of people I think we're discovering that don't want to move away from. They want to bring up a family in the town they b- mm. were born in and grew up in. They don't necessarily want to 
go to university, move away, come down, come down to London, or even become a commuter where they have to sit on a train for three hours a day. Mm. I mean, in in some of the places I travelled in South Wales, so Ebervale, for example, um, or or Cum, which used to you know former former pit town, you've you've got to really. Someone said to me there, you've got to really become a commuter today to 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 get a a, a stable job with a con where you're mm. you're offered a contract and you know it takes an hour and a half what to get to Cardiff from from Ebervale um I think I think it was an hour and a half um and it's not everyone is willing to do that so you end up with people with you end up with these social problems um which are a bred partly of, of hopelessness and and the the inability to kind of create this this kind of stable and secure life for yourself and and who do you blame most of all for um for this is it is it you, you you paint a picture of amazon for example um one of the richest fastest growing companies in the in the world um and the, the stories you tell of the way the security guards at amazon disrespected the people working there the intensive electronic surveillance of you at all, all times and the lack of any real hope of a, of a permanent um job um and I think in um, in Blackpool you wrote about um, how people live in fear of actually the employers. But then on the other side, you uh, told me something which I found incredibly shocking when you were working as a care worker in South Wales. Oh, it, that was in Blackpool. Oh, I'm care sorry, work. in Blackpool. Yes, um, <coughs> it was a call centre. South Wales. Yeah. yeah. Um, it took 77 days for at that time for criminal records checks. Uh, to be processed, which if you're a care worker working with vulnerable people, you obviously have to pass. And you can't get paid until those criminal record checks have uh, have been passed. So is is the state as, as much of a problem as, as, as employers, or is this a capitalist um, problem that we're not just seeing in Britain, but in, in America and other parts of the advanced world too? Well, I, th- I think... In, with somewhere, somewhere like Amazon, I think the problem is you've you've not got really a, a, a trade union movement, a functioning trade union movement in those places anymore. Mm. It tends to be confined to the public sector, so you haven't really got workers haven't really got a voice in that environment to negotiate mm. with with mm. bosses there. So mm. if they did, um, then you could easily negotiate some of the some of the targets yeah. between you know some of the some of the productivity targets at, at Amazon were just ridiculous you're you're being told off for you know taking a, a toilet break mm. if you had when i used to work as a as a postman for the royal mail if if that happened i had someone i could go a union rep i could go to and who could then discuss it with the management and mm. we could come to a compromise ideally mm. where with, with amazon you don't you don't have that um the point about the dbs checks was you know if you work with with vulnerable adults in any form you have to it, it makes sense. You have to have a check, um, a criminal record check, mm. to check you're not, you know, an abuser or something. Um, the police forces um, have had lots of their resources cut, and so they they have this backlog of of checks that are not being carried out. So it's taking months to get your DBS check back. So you can mm. you can get a job in social care or something. Um, there have been cases of people getting jobs as, as primary school teachers. Then you have to wait months until you can actually start work and start getting paid. Um, because the, you're waiting for the, your local police force to get back um, to the employer to say that you haven't got a criminal record. Mm. And the other side, another example of where it's state failure in a sense is 
um, you talk about tyrannical bosses. No, sorry, you talk about bad bosses, um, and then you talk about tyrannical landlords. And you know, Britain's dysfunctional housing market is really a, a problem of state regulation, not producing um, uh, enough flexibility for either the private sector build or not putting the investment in for, for a new generation of council accommodation. Well, yeah, I mean, there's not enough houses are being built, essentially. And mm. it's, um, yeah, so, I mean, you're, you're at, the, at the, the beck and call of, of landlords. Some, it's a lottery. Some landlords were, were okay, who I dealt mm. with, but some, it was, it was really hard to, to get them to, to sort things out in the, in, the, in the places I was living. And I think you look at, you obviously spent quite a bit of time with um, immigrants um, during this um, uh, process, doing jobs that perhaps British people are reluctant to do, or certainly doing jobs that, where they're treated in a way that British people would be reluctant to, to do. Um, and I think at some point you almost come to the point where saying there needs to be more control on immigration, but you don't quite um, say it. You, you always hesitate to do it, and then you go back to the one policy recommendation you keep coming back to which is um, more union um, empowerment now you mentioned the post office uh, a lot of people perhaps on the right people like me would think actually the unionization of the post office and the Royal Mail um, slowed down that service and made it much more vulnerable to the sort of private competition um, that we've seen a lot of the private the union movement in Britain is now largely a public sector phenomenon and a lot of those public sector organisations, they've certainly increased the wages of the people who have the jobs, um, like on the tube. Um, but a lot of people would also say that the Britain's public sector is pretty ossified, it's not flexible. Um, and have unions changed enough from when you know they were public enemy number one for a lot of people in the 70s? Uh, Mrs Thatcher reformed them, some would say over-reformed them, but have they moved to a position where actually they aren't going to suffocate the, the private sector if, if they were given the kind of powers and expanded role in society that you clearly want for them? Well, I mean, I think, I think there are some, some quite high-profile characters in the unions who are very unreconstructed um, socialists, if you like. Um, but I don't... But, I mean, I, I think we're so far away from... The, the kind of demon summoned up, summoned up by the winter of discontent in some of the areas I, I, I studied for the book, I visited for the book. It's, we're so far away from that now that I, I think fear of, of kind of endless strikes is, is at this point is, is overblown. I don't think um, in you know, the, the private social care sector, in, in the, the Amazon warehouse, in, in these call centers, in the gig economy, I, I think that's to, to, to think that's the problem, I think, is is quite far away from where we are in reality, to yeah. be honest. Okay, well, that put me in my place. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the unions um, have partly sort of created the new Labour Party we have at the moment under under Jeremy Corbyn. But there's a, there's a little se section towards the end of your book where you worry that the new Labour Party is more interested in... Uh, students, uh, the ideas class, than perhaps some of the working class communities that um, you tried to understand the pressures that, uh, that they're facing in this book. Tell, tell us more about that, if I've represented your view correctly. No, I mean, I think there's a danger of um, socialism, as it were, uh, being something, the preserve of middle class hobbyists, in a way. Um, 
for example, um, I didn't really meet anyone uh, in in my book. I can't I can't really maybe maybe one I think one person who was enthused by Jeremy Corbyn. Most people were kind of still in quite indifferent to mm -hmm. to the Labour Party and Labour politics. Um, which was in stark contrast to so so my my granddad's generation mm. um, from South Wales. You know his heroes and Iron Bevan would never stop talking about mm. an Iron Bevan. Um, whereas <laughs> this, is where, this is where your politics came from. And part, <laughs> I mean partly yes, uh, but there's there's a, a, a really big disconnect between the so-called movement um, around momentum and mm. and and whatnot, and many working people in these jobs. I'm not saying that's I don't want to kind of sneer at um, organisations like Momentum for trying to enthuse people, and I don't want to want to pretend that students don't have financial problems. More people go to university these days. More working class people go to university. It's very hard to get on the property ladder. I met lots of students working in call centres who'd been promised this. You know, a decade ago they'd been promised if they go to university, it will open up all these doors for you. Mm -hmm. You learn far more in your lifetime. And now they're in on the minimum wage in, in call centres. That mm. I, th I think it is a real problem. But there's also there's a there's a tendency within um, Labour for people to kind of rally against uh, these kind of uh, you know like anti-imperialism and these kind of middle class uh, kitsch kind mm. of obsessions, um, and not actually looking at, at the the kind of meat and potatoes issues mm. that working people are facing. Because secret's in the name, really, isn't it? And, you know, the, some people say the Conservative Party doesn't do much conserving, but Labour is supposed to represent the, 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 the Labour classes, the working classes. And at the last election, the British general election, I think amongst lowest income workers, the Labour lead actually was down from f to just five points, 42 to 37% in the Conservatives. We're seeing the same phenomenon in America, where Trump is increasingly, um, or the Republicans are increasingly hoovering up uh, blue-collar American votes and the Democrats are getting the higher income university educated uh, David Goodhart the author would, would call them the sort of the anywhere um, classes uh, does Labour need to worry about that uh, or, or are the demographics pointing one way and almost allows them to neglect that class and of course we saw that under Tony Blair the the targeting of middle-class uh, 60 seats, you know, that, that, that win elections. This has been a long pattern, really, for all sorts of demographic and campaigning reasons of Labour moving away from the people that you try and draw attention to in Hyde. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, there are, there are people on the, the Blairite wing of the, of the party and, and in the, you know, the new Democrats in the states, which don't, which, which are, are fairly open sometimes in not really seeing this as a problem. So yeah. they... They espouse a sort of, um, it's been called before, like lean-in multiculturalism, where the working class have kind of exhausted their historical role yeah. um, on the left, and the left should just pitch now to, to you know affluent minorities and the middle classes. Um, but I think it's, it, this is more of a problem f for, for people on the left and Jeremy Corbyn, because they've kind of always pitched themselves not in that way I mean no. that's the but the Labour Party continues to drift in that direction um, we mentioned immigration um, that's that's one issue where I mean I talk about it in the book where at, at when I was at working at Amazon you have most of the most of the local people had had quit the job basically when it had first opened in 2011 you'd had you had local people doing it but they drifted away and by the time I got there most almost all my colleagues, uh, all my co-workers there 
doing order picking were Romanians. Mm. Now, um, as someone who's on balance pro-immigration, um, I, you know, what people think the solution to, uh, I mean, to start with, this was creating a, a, a very particular dynamic in the Amazon warehouse where uh, the, the management thought they could essentially get away with what they liked because lots of the, my co-workers didn't understand the laws in, in Britain, uh, didn't understand what they were entitled to, wouldn't know who to phone if they had a problem at work, wouldn't know who to complain to if their wages mm -hmm. weren't paid properly on time, which actually did happen quite, quite often. That creates a certain dynamic at work. As one of the former colliers who I, who I met in the town told me, how are we supposed to compete with that? Mm -hmm. um, now, what the solution is, whether it's, it's stronger trade unions, whether it's stronger border controls, I'm not really coming down firmly on any, any side in the book. Mm. But it would be nice if the left talked about, acknowledged that, that that even happens in the first place, instead of just when someone brings that up, bombarding them with, with you know, wonkish reports saying mm. that, well, you know, it only affects low paid, you know, by this much if, well, like these, this is people's lived experience. If you go out there mm. um, and see these things in real time, it is make, it is changing the dynamic in the workplace. Mm. That, that doesn't mean you need to deal with that through, through border controls. It could be through, through social democratic means, trade unions, for example, but it would be nice to just have a conversation about yeah. it. And you, and you think it's necessary, ultimately it will be the left that has to face up to this. You, um, made some pretty pointed remarks, for example, about Theresa May's grammar schools policy and that um, so much of Tory emphasis is about helping a certain number of working class people escape these circumstances, but it will inevitably still leave millions of people in the soup, I think is, you, um, is, is the word you use. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, the idea of the grammar schools policy is, is to help bright but poor kids, is, yeah. is the, the phrase which is often used. And I mean, yeah, I mean that in principle that sounds that sounds like a good idea, and I don't want don't want to hold bright but poor uh, working class kids back. But the point is, what what about you know working class kids who who are left behind, who don't go to university? What are we offering them? Um, they're I mean they're just as entitled to to have a, a reasonable standard of living, yeah. I, I think, as a, as a brain box who goes off to to Oxford or Cambridge. I, I mean, I don't f see that as a reason to get. The, that the only kind of job you offer someone is in is in some warehouse in a zero hours contract. I mean, I think we should offer those those people a decent life as well. Look, there's so many things we could discuss, and um, the only solution really for people who really want to get to grips with everything you've raised is is, is to buy um, the book published by uh, uh, Atlantic, uh, at the very good price of twelve pounds um, ninety nine, probably discounted on Amazon. I should. No, I haven't looked. I haven't looked. It's, it's discounted in Smith's, so so oh, okay. so you can you, you can, can go, go you can go there and have a clean conscience. Yes, as you, <laughs> you. But final question though from from me, uh, uh, James. I asked you at the beginning. Did anything surprise you? Um, did anything change your mind? Did was there anything you saw in your six months in these these really tough jobs, marked by extraordinary insecurity, marked by managerial practices that are so untrusting and um, by the, a, a lack of hopeless uh, a lack of hope and a lack of solidarity it's so it's, it's a very powerful account of how difficult things is but was anything really take you back and you think cause you to reconsider a view or reconsider any part of your politics 
I mean, the the social aspect of it. So not the purely economic economic uh, mm. side of this, I suppose. So the the kind of atomization of social life outside of the workplace. So. Mm. In, in many former industrial areas in South Wales and, and the West Midlands in particular, you had the disappearance of jobs which, which give a sense of dignity, but also the, the loss of the social structures around work. So uh, the closure of pubs, closure of social clubs, the, the smoking dis- ban or did people or I'm not multiple sure sources multiple reasons yeah I'm, I, I'm not sure so much the, the smoking ban but yeah. just the a kind of atomization the, the dis- disintegration of, of kind of family life the disappearance even of, of organized religion now again I'm not religious myself um, but the, the kind of complete atomization of, of, I of many you, aspects I thought of you worship Liverpool football <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Most Salah, almost yeah. a religion <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the the kind of yeah the atomization of life. I hadn't really considered that enough, perhaps in in the mm. past. It was you know for me it was all about economics, but the social structures, um, the the support networks um, have disappeared as well, which has creates a really bleak picture in in some parts of the country. I think, and that it is a bleak book. We shouldn't be under. We shouldn't give. <laughs> we, we, we shouldn't give uh, uh, the false impression to the people. They're not going to be particularly cheered by um, uh, reading this book. But I would still recommend that people do. It's a necessary account of what life is like for far too many people in our country. And you would regard it as typical of a lot of firms. You didn't choose Amazon because you learned beforehand that they were particularly bad, or you didn't choose the particular care homes that you went to because of. These are typical of lots of firms in our, in our country today. Yes, it wasn't. I didn't set out with the intention of you know, uh, you know, poverty porn almost and making yeah. it as bleak as possible. I I, I took the jobs I, I got basically and then then wrote about them and just tried to be straightforward as straightforward as possible in the book and describe the things I saw. Yeah. You know, as Orwell said, to see what's in front of your nose is you know is is not as easy as you think. Um, it isn't. No. Well, you've done, you've done a great job. Um, hired by James Bloodworth, uh, six months undercover in low-wage Britain, published by Atlantic, uh, price £12.99, is available for pre-ordering now and available in all good bookshops on the 1st of March. And really, James would prefer you to buy them in books in bookshops uh, if you possibly can james it's always a pleasure to have you here thank you very much for your time today good luck with the book are you touring the country doing lots of bookshop talks and things as well as writing for newspapers yes i mean there's yes i'll be at, at several festivals i mean yeah. there's, there's one in glasgow there's i'm i should be speaking at the edinburgh festival i think um, but that's okay. oxford august there's there's yeah there's a few oxford literary festival next month as well um, yeah, you should see me around and, for better And if or worse. people want to see dates like that, they should follow you on Twitter. Yes, so J underscore Bloodworth. Um, you can. I'll keep you up to date. Um, I'm also talking at Foils in Charing Cross on the seventh of March. Okay, brilliant. Well, do follow uh, James J underscore Bloodworth um, for more information about the um, book. And um, we will be back next week. Hopefully, Aisha and I will be reunited to discuss a, another topic. And um, thank you to James Coney, as always, for producing this podcast. And if you do enjoy listening to this, please do rate it on your normal podcast app, as that does help draw attention 
to other people um, of this podcast's existence. Thank you, as always, for your company. Goodbye.